Things are getting worse, I tell you. <laughs> What's next? Just, anyway. Um, we can manage. I'm sure we can manage. Turn to Mark chapter 6 if you haven't already. Today, uh, our text is verses 14 through 29. Verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 6. And I will read them here in just a little bit. Now, last week's text... Uh, you, you, you've heard of a, you know, a, a good show or book series will end on something of a, a cliffhanger, either where there's a big question that needs to be answered, or even just extreme excitement and anticipation for the next part of the story. And last week's text kind of ended that way, not so much in a cliffhanger and confusion about what's next, but more in the way of just excitement about what's coming next. Because at the end of last week's text, Jesus sends out his 12 guys. He takes his mission, he places it upon them, and he sends them out two by two. He sends them out in pairs to to go throughout the towns and the villages and to really perform amazing ministry, preaching to people, calling them to repentance, performing healings, and driving out demons. That's how verse 13 ended. That's last week's text. And, and, and so naturally, we could show up to this week's text wanting the details of how that mission went. I want, I want, I want to know the nuances of, of, of uh, casting out demons and people who were moved to repentance and all these things. Uh, the dead raised, the sick healed, all of that. We want those details, but we don't, we don't get them. That's not where Mark takes things in his gospel. The disciples are sent out and the attention immediately shifts to King Herod and his murder of John the Baptist. Why? While the disciples are out doing ministry, we get the story of Herod killing John the Baptist. And when this story is over, the disciples have returned. Why... Why the sidetrack? Why the rabbit trail? Well, again, we'll read that text in a moment and that will become clear. But our passage today, remember, just, a couple, just a couple basic principles as we approach Scripture. Nothing is in here by mistake. God put it in here. And He put it in here in the order that He wanted. And so it is evident that for some reason, God wants our attention at this point to shift from the disciples' two-by-two ministry to Herod Antipas, and his killing of John the Baptist. God wants that. God wants that for you. He wants that for us today. This is clear. And we know that we're going to benefit from this story in some way. Because all scripture is profitable for us. Okay, so we know this. Even if we're a bit confused, that's okay. God is not. So here, here's just a couple surface level ways that this text helps us. First, it answers the question, hey, uh, whatever happened to John the Baptist? It's not as happy an ending for John as we would have liked, but it does answer the question. He was on the scene, he was prominent, and then he seemed to kind of fade away, kind of like he said he would. He would decrease, Christ would increase. It answers the question, what happens to John the Baptist? But we also get an inside look at the next generation in a family, a dynasty of dysfunctional kings. The Herods. I was just thinking as I prepared this week, they, they could almost have had their own... Reality show. I mean, there were, there were so many of them, and they were 
often ridiculous and, and just horrible people. Um, it would have sold, certainly, this day and age. People would watch it. But we're going to see yet another interaction between the kingdom of heaven, which is good and right and pure, an interaction between God's kingdom and a wicked kingdom of men, um, personified and led by this king, Herod. But we also see redemptive history overall take a big step forward as John, John, the last of an old order, um, the, the last prophet of the old covenant kind. We see the book finally close on John. He passes out of sight and Jesus, a new and better prophet, mediator over a better covenant, comes into fuller view and even greater focus. But the story is told, interestingly, with Herod as the central character. And he's not a good guy. But he's the central character here in the story. So it's a a very interesting piece of gospel literature. Um, But again, this is in the Bible on purpose. So we will read it. We will be affected by it because that's what God does by his word. So let's focus on Herod today and let's see what the Lord has in store for us. Verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read them now. If you are able, out of honor for God's word, would you please stand with me? Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, read like this. When King Herod heard, excuse me, King Herod heard of it, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish. And I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. May God always bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. You may have a seat.
Now, just for sake of clarity, there are several Herods mentioned in the New Testament. Herod the Great was the one after the baby Jesus. He died not long after Christ was born. This is one of his sons. This is Herod Antipas. Um, and, and Herod the Great, the one after Jesus, his great-grandson, Agrippa II, that's the Herod that Paul would preach the gospel to in Acts 26 as he's working to make his appeal uh, to Caesar. So there's lots of Herods, plenty of Herods to go around, but Herod Antipas is an interesting character to us. And I think one of the reasons he's interesting to us is that we almost want to sympathize with him. We almost want to sympathize with this man. He seems to have been kind of fond of John the Baptist, doesn't he? He met with him. Who knows how many times he listened to him. He kept him safe when Herodias wanted him dead. He he was captivated by what he said. But on the other hand... Herod was ultimately conned and trapped by his own wife, and he ultimately put John to death, though it saddened him to do so. Tough luck. You could say, you could wonder, Herod had a, he had a heart of gold, but he was put in a bad situation. And politicians, you know, their hands are tied. This was really nobody's fault. Boy, if ever there seemed to be an indecisive, middle-of-the-road character relating to God's coming kingdom, it, it seems to be Herod. Um, so what is he? Well, is he a friend to the kingdom? Um, is, is he an enemy to the kingdom? Or does he have to be either? Maybe Herod has found a way to create some sort of middle road as it regards God's agenda. Neither for it nor against it. Herod kind of comes across that way. And I think we all have people in mind that we would regard the same way. When we stop and think about it, we think of people this way sometimes. People who might not buy into all this gospel stuff. But they don't seem antagonistic toward it either. Are are they allies? Are they enemies? Have they found some unwritten plateau that, that for some reason is not touched by making difficult decisions about God and his kingdom? Or really, and here's my proposition for you today, it's a question. Can I be neutral toward God's kingdom? Can I be neutral Now, I am aware that Herod never claimed those exact words. He never claimed to be neutral toward this kingdom, as far as we can tell in in what's recorded. But this is the obvious inference from his uh, behavior and from his relationship with John. He gladly heard John preach, yet he did not believe his message. So where do you stand, Herod? And for us, how we think about and interact with those who are like Herod in our own lives. How do we think about those people? They're not quite on board, but they're not quite against it either. I'm talking about people who seem to be indifferent. Take Herod, for example. He's not one of the 
uh, historic enemies of God, is he? You know, Jezebel, Pharaoh, Goliath. People like that were blatantly and fully committed to throwing down God's people and God's agenda. Those were, those were the nasties. Vicious people. Herod seems mostly harmless. You know people like this? Family members, neighbors, co-workers. Anytime something of a biblical nature is brought up, they, they, they listen politely, maybe. I might ask a question or two, but ultimately they shrug and get back to whatever they're doing. Characters like Herod really make us wrestle with our understanding of people, our understanding of sin, our understanding of God's kingdom and what it does. Is it as simple as friend and foe, ally or enemy, insider, outsider? Or is there a middle category for people as they relate and respond to God's plan and agenda? Can I be neutral toward God's kingdom? Here's how the text will help us see the answer. And I want to show my hand right up front. This text shows us the desire to claim some sort of neutral ground or middle ground toward God and his purposes. That desire is in many people. You know, we're not comfortable following God, but we aren't sure we want to be his enemy either. Can we be some sort of moral and theological Switzerland here? No, we cannot. We can not. It's not possible. This story of Herod and his dealings with John the Baptist, this points us to the reality that God has not created a third category for people. All people are confronted with God's kingdom and they are confronted with God's king, Jesus. And their allegiance will ultimately land with God and his agenda or against God and his agenda as pleasant and as friendly toward the faith as they might try to seem in life today. Can I be neutral toward God's kingdom? I, I put forward to you that no, you cannot. And I want to illustrate that with several, uh, several characteristics of neutrality. And from here on, when I say neutrality, I'm using scare quotes. Neutrality. And the first is that neutrality is always fearful. Neutrality is fearful. King Herod, this uh, seemingly neutral figure, he is a man who is characterized by fear. This is a fearful man, which is odd because he's king. His appearance of neutrality is, is really, when we investigate what's going on, motivated by multiple fears, not just one. He's got multiple fears going on. So let's look at who he fears and let's recognize that any time someone claims a middle ground, I, ah, boy, I really don't want to take sides as it pertains to God, neutrality toward God and his kingdom. What is really going on is a misplaced element of fear. So, first of all, here's the first fear. Herod was afraid of John. And to a great degree, he should have been, in the right sense. He's afraid of John, and so he is somewhat amiable toward him. King Herod heard of it, verse 14 says. That's how the text starts. He heard of it. Heard of what? Like we said, he heard of what was mentioned in verse 13, about the disciples going out, the disciples healing, preaching, casting away demons. He heard about... The kingdom going forward in power. Herod heard about that. Herod heard about the success of the same kingdom John talked about. But wait a minute, John is dead. And yet this kingdom is moving forward. Herod heard of it. 
He hears that the kingdom is going forward and that at the center of that forward motion, there is a central figure people are calling Jesus. This comes to Herod and there's confusion or speculation about who this Jesus is. And that speculation continues right up to Jesus' death. You can see that uh, in Luke's gospel when, when Jesus appears before Herod in Jerusalem. But there's confusion. There's ideas shared by his folks, another prophet, Elijah. But Herod believes this is John. The same John who very likely not long at all before this moment, Herod had ordered to be beheaded. Fresh in the grave, likely. And Herod is afraid. How do we know he's afraid? Because the text tells us in verse 20 that Herod feared John in life. <laughs> the first time when, he's, when he had his head, Herod was afraid of him. How much more in his resurrected state and now with power for things like miracles in Herod's mind. He killed John, but now he believes that not only is John back, but he is back with power. Herod feared John. Second, now, no, let me pause. He feared him, and it's important why. We'll get to this later more too. He feared him because of, the text says, because of his morality. And because of where John stood with God. He was righteous and holy, the text says. And that was connected to Herod's fear of him. We'll unpack that more in a bit, but just for now, just see it. He had a fear of John, and that affected his actions keeping him safe uh, from Herodias, these sorts of things. But John is not the only one he feared. Herod also fears the people, popularity, um, his, his, uh, his peers. In, in what was likely a drunken moment of vulnerability, Herod promises his stepdaughter, Salome, that he'll give her whatever she wants. And he makes the promise in front of his friends. And so when she asks for John's head, Herod was exceedingly sorry, we read. But guess what? He was super exceedingly fearful of his guests, of their opinion of him. And the two came to terms with each other and his fear was heavier than his sorrow was. This is kind of like Darius and Daniel in the lion's den. Darius fretted all night, yet he did nothing to get Daniel out of there. It's kind of like that. He couldn't lose face in front of his dinner guests. He already wasn't the most popular ruler. So let's just not make things worse. We're just going to have to swallow this one. He fears the people. And third, he clearly fears his wife, Herodias. Or, <laughs> um, and, and funny, there are people who were raised and are still in the same church I was raised in. As my father always referred to her, Herodias the odious. Herodias was his wife, but not at the first. Both Herod Antipas and Herodias were previously married. Uh, Antipas essentially had an adulterous relationship with her and took her away from his own brother, um, who's, not, who's still living, who's not yet dead. It, it was a scandalous situation, and it becomes clear that Herod feared his new wife. Um, it is clear who wears the ancient Near Eastern pants in this relationship. John had uh, been imprisoned for the sake of Herodias, who was bitter and who had a grudge against John. She wanted him dead. So 
I don't think Herod Antipas married her for her winning personality. And so when Herod is trapped by her plan, rather than do the right thing and stand up to his wife, he gave in to her demands. So he also feared his wife. Here's the bottom line. Did Herod have some genuine fondness for John? It seems like he did. It seems like he genuinely did. But in his commitment to please all the entities he feared, eventually someone had to take priority and someone had to go to the literal chopping block. And it was John. Sorry, John. Herod's fear of others outweighed any interest in God's kingdom. Ultimately, he feared man more than God. Contrast that with Peter's words to the high priest in Acts 5. We must obey God rather than men. Complete opposite. Herod concluded, I must obey men rather than God. You cannot serve both God and man. You cannot fear both God and man. One will always win out. This coming kingdom of God destroys any notion of neutrality toward God and his King Jesus. Think about it this way. What you fear most will be revealed when you are confronted by the King of Kings. When Jesus is in the picture, what you fear most will be revealed. We have to engage with so-called neutrality with this in mind. It is not neutrality at all. It is a masked fear of something other than the God of history, the God of the Bible. People must see that if they are going to come to terms with their allegiances, they need to face what they fear. When someone says they are neutral toward God, what what they are really saying is that there is something they fear more than God. Secondly, Neutrality is not just uh, connected to fear. Neutrality is moral corruption. In other words, you cannot be neutral toward God and be in a good place morally. Neutrality is a word that, that really means neither. Neither. You, you take neither side when there are two or more options. And sometimes this is okay. Are, are you a ketchup guy or a mustard guy? I've never actually heard anyone put that forward. I'm sorry, this is a lame example. But are you a ketchup guy or a mustard guy? You know, neither. You know, uh, winter or summer, neither. Corduroy or plaid, neither. Or for some in this church, both. <laughs> but neutrality, I'm not, look, I'm not looking at anyone. <laughs> neutrality assumes some kind of middle ground. It, it, if you ask me personally, which I like watching better, competitive lacrosse or competitive billiards, I'm going to tell you that I'm neutral in the debate. Personally. And and I think I can be in that stance and morally okay. It it is irrelevant to me, and so I have no preferences one way or another. So, So why can't that work with God? Why not? It works with flavors, sports teams, colors, and weather conditions. Why can't I take a neutral stance on God, His purposes, and His commands? Well, what does Scripture say? Isn't that always the question? We, we could spend hours here today and not exhaust all Scripture has to say on this matter. So please just consider this one passage that I think summarizes the point well. It's from Psalm 119, speaking to God. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Now, God alone is good. Okay. God determines what is right, what is pure, and what is holy. God defines those things. 
Because he is those things. Not according to some outside definition assigned to him, but according to his own nature and character. God did not ask for human assistance when defining what is good and true and and beautiful and right. He he is those things. So, So when God speaks, his words must be taken as they are. Universally and eternally true. Always right. They must be taken that way or not taken at all. In other words, God has no gray areas. No ambiguities in his nature, no moral. Yet there are no moral issues over which God says, meh. And and because there is no higher standard for truth and authority anywhere, there's no higher standard. And because that's true, that means this. God's words are the absolute dividing line of all things for all time. What God says. So let me put it this way. You cannot take a middle stance when it comes to absolutes like morality, good and evil, right and wrong, holy and filthy. We, we cannot take a middle ground there because God has not left room for it. He has spoken to these things, creating two categories. You're in or you're out. Here's the deal. Neutrality, moral neutrality, neutrality toward God and God's word is a myth. And here's the thing. Herod knew it. He knew it. That's evident in the text. Consider with me. Herod Herod was not foreign to what God required of people. He knew. He just chose to ignore. Herod knew that John was righteous and holy. That's what verse 20 says. Think about this. Herod knew... That John was righteous and holy. Two concepts that only God has the right to define. Righteousness and holiness. And Herod knew it. Herod knew also his own guilt for having killed John. We read about that in verse 16. Herodias even was mad at John for calling out their marriage. Why? Because it was wrong and they both knew it. You, you, you cannot claim some sort of neutrality toward God and assume that you are morally okay. You cannot. In fact, this is exactly what John uh, took Herod to task over with, with his marriage to Herodias. He didn't make some pragmatic argument about, about Herod's marriage. Well, how is this going to work out when it comes to that? No, he, he, he went straight to the heart of God. He told Herod, quote, It is not lawful. For you to have your brother's wife. I want to tell you exactly what John is doing here. He's taking Leviticus 18 verse 16. And he is telling a debauched God-hating man to obey God's law. Your disobedience of God's law condemns you. Yeah, but I'm neutral. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Because what God has said is good. You say, wait a minute, you can't do that. You, you, you can't tell a non-Christian to obey what God says. Consider these words from 1 Timothy chapter 1. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's who the law is for, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral Herod, 
Men who practice homosexuality and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Herod can try to pay the middle road all he wants, but at the end of the day, there is a God in heaven who has righteous standards, and he holds all people accountable to those standards, whether or not they claim some kind of supposed indifference in life. Herod didn't get a free pass for saying, oh, actually, I'm agnostic, so he he didn't. So what? So so God won't judge you on the last day because you self-identify on the survey as being spiritual but not religious? Herod was a morally corrupt man, according to God's good and holy standards. So-called neutrality toward God is not moral goodness or even moral neutrality. It is moral corruption. Take a look at his birthday. Yikes. You think this is a morally neutral man? There is licentious partying happening. Most certainly, a little alcohol is probably involved. His stepdaughter performed some sort of gratuitous dance, which was unthinkable for people of high class to do. Dances like this weren't unheard of, but for, uh, for royalty to do it was. He makes a horrible oath, which was wrong also. Gambling his power and kingdom, wrong also. He becomes the final voice in the murder of an innocent man and prophet, wrong also. According to God's word. Proverbs, this is so... Proverbs 31 is great, and, and it... It is used to to praise a godly woman. But read the first part. It's actually addressed to the king. And the first part of Proverbs 31, verse 3 specifically, warns kings to not give their strength away to women lest they invite destruction. And that's exactly what this coward does right here. Herodias was after him and she got him. There's nothing morally neutral about this man. He is depraved to the core. You either follow after God and his word or you invite massive chaos and moral bankruptcy into your life. That's it. That's it. Those are the two options. And so someone can be a good guy, right? Well, no, no, he's not a believer. But but you know what? He mows his lawn. Um, He pays his taxes. He, He lent us a cup of sugar once. Never heard him cuss at his dog. He's a good guy. He he's just not sure about all the Christianity stuff. Well, church, someone can be a great neighbor to you and a great enemy of God at the same time. For your sake, I'm glad he's a good neighbor. I like good neighbors. But for the neighbor's sake, I pray he lets go of his fear and his pride and bows to Jesus. Neutrality toward the one true God is a myth and Herod knew it. What, what's more pertinent for us today? We have to know it. You cannot place people in a middle category of where they stand before the Lord. Here's the thing, church. People who claim to be neutral toward God are not okay. They are not okay because they are not neutral. They're not okay because they're not neutral. They may believe they are, but they deceive themselves. Such a neutrality is a myth. Herod's true allegiances, think about this, Herod's true allegiances were eventually realized. Luke 13 tells us he got to the point he wanted to kill Jesus. 
he finally met Jesus and then rather desired to hear any truth or, or even work toward pardoning him, he wanted to see a magic trick. Read about that in Luke 23. Neutral people are not okay because neutral people don't exist. And, and that should do so much for us. At, at, the, at the baseline, that should fuel our prayer. Pray for indifferent, neutral people. Pray for their souls. Pray for deep conviction. The, the, the worst thing that you could do is let them think that they're okay in a so-called neutral stance. Or like, well, you're not a blatant antagonist, so you must be closer to God than these people. Nuh-uh. Can't think that way. Scripture doesn't let us. Pray for them. Pray for the people in your life who would want to be neutral. This should fuel our evangelism. Um, you know, I, I love ministries that go to like the woe. Like, hey, we're, like, we're hanging out, you know, out, outside of brothels and, you know, casinos. And we're going after the worst of the worst. Good. I'm not, I wouldn't, man, I wouldn't squelch that at all. What about the typical middle class guy or gal who has a steady job thinks and, and thinks they're fine, but they hate God in their heart. This should fuel our... Evangelism doesn't just count once you're in like a, a dangerous situation or in a dark alleyway. We need that too. I'm not discrediting that. You also need evangelism next door or in the next cubicle or, or whatever. Because this neutrality is a myth. Some people, it's just, it's just more visible. It's more evident, you might say. This should inform our conversations. This should prompt good questions. If people are going to see redemption in Christ clearly, they must come to terms with the fact that they are enemies toward God and not neutral parties. So third and last, neutrality, so-called neutrality, cannot last forever. It cannot last forever. What happened with Herod is a picture of what happens with all people eventually. Uh, the issue would be forced and Herod would stay an enemy of God and would even go down in history as one of the greatest enemies of the kingdom. You know this. You've read through Acts chapter 4. The kings of the earth, quoting the psalm, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Boy, they sound like bad guys. Who were they? Truly, in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Herod and Pontius Pilate. Wait, wait a minute, though. Herod kind of liked John. Well, here he's listed as the fulfillment of the psalm. As one of the leading antagonists against Christ and his kingdom. That's how Herod would be remembered. That's how. Because neutrality cannot last forever. He, he would not be remembered as being a weird half-friend to John. What do you call that? A fren frenemy? <laughs> but as one of the kings who set himself against Jesus. His neutrality was exposed for being what it truly is. Deep animosity. You see, what we see with Herod and John is something of a pre... There's nothing new under the sun, folks, right? It's something of a precursor to what would happen again with the one who is greater than John. Think about the parallels. It's striking. Jesus would appear before Pilate. Pilate did not want to kill Jesus. Jesus' life would be in his hands, but by the end of the ordeal... 
Pilate, like Herod, would give in. He would give in to fear. He would give in to pressure. And he would knowingly do the wrong thing. And he even had the benefit of having a wise and insightful wife. But he would still give in to the pressure and the fear of others and do the wrong thing. God's anointed would again be condemned at the hand of wicked people. Jesus would, just like John was. And Jesus would be murdered, just like John was. John was taken and placed in a tomb. Jesus was taken and placed in a tomb. Neutrality will always be exposed for the animosity that it truly is. But there is an escalated difference between the two men's situations as well. One that matters for all people in all places. And it's simply this. John stayed dead. But Jesus rose to life again. And he rose to life not just because. No, he rose to life after paying the penalty that sinners owed. And having lived a perfect life that sinners could not live. So when Jesus walked away from death, he took the very keys with him. He owns it now. And all creation is subject to him. Meanwhile, at that moment, John is still dead and is at best cheering on the victory from the grave. If Herod Herod thought that he was done with all this kingdom of God stuff when he had John killed. Yes, sorry, John, but it had to happen. Boy, at least we're done with all that preachiness and that kingdom stuff. If he thought he was done with that when John was killed, he was wrong. He was dead wrong. His father could not stop it. He could not stop it. Agrippa would not stop it. Because John may have lost his head by the hand of Herod, but Satan lost his by the foot of Jesus. Soon, Christ would walk out of the tomb, meaning that John's message would be validated. And then what, Herod? Seriously, then what? Jesus is alive. John was right. Now what? Any neutral stance, any supposed middle ground evaporates in the light of Jesus and his finished work. Redemptive history turned a major page with John the Baptist coming on the scene in the old covenant fashion. But then passing away and leaving more room for the glorious Jesus, the mediator of the better covenant. Herod was witness to that. Herod saw the page turn. And he should have seen better than anyone That this kingdom really would not be shaken. It would not go away. It confronts every human heart. John will fall, but Jesus will rise. And however neutral we think we might be, we are confronted. Your move, neutral person. It's your move. King Jesus is on the throne. And all people everywhere are called to repent of their sins And follow after Him in joyful faith and obedience, trusting Him for their salvation, their eternal security because of what He's accomplished for them. If you you think you're neutral, wake up from your dream world where God is irrelevant and you can make your own way. You can't. Christ alone has made the way to glory. Now, none of us were there when Herod eventually died, but at the end of things... When Herod faces judgment, and when Herod is called to account for his life, and he will, he may say something like, but I was kind of John's buddy for a while. Doesn't that count for something? Folks, what will ultimately matter 
is not whether or not you ever donated to a church. Um, If you were friendly to your Christian neighbors or even if you shared some of their same political viewpoints. God-hating people do those things. What matters for eternity is your submission to the king. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus in full submission? Repenting of your sin? Trusting in him alone for your salvation? Or are you trying desperately to create some kind of middle ground toward God and what he says is true? Because those are are two eternally different trajectories. They're not similar in the slightest. We're going to allow this to inform our prayer. We're going to pray in a moment. And we're going to allow this to inform how we think of the seemingly neutral people in our lives. Our evangelism. our, Our overall understanding of people in their natural state in sin. People need the gospel. Just all people need the gospel and not just the vehement, belligerent opponents of God's purposes, the seemingly neutral and even friendly ones, too. We live in a world that is actually absent of neutrality, a world in desperately need of Christ. So for the sake of God's glory and for the good of people, let's live like that's true. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we just, we just acknowledge, we reaffirm what, what, what we've read here. That Herod was wrong. He, he was not a friend of the kingdom. He was truly no friend of John. Certainly no friend of your son, Jesus. Lord, I, I pray today that in our minds, starting in ourselves, that we would start to think about neutrality like it really is. It's a myth. And uh, we can't pave a middle road with you. I pray that that would be increasingly abundant, that we'd be convicted of that, Lord, and that we would pray, we would think, we would act, and we would plan according to that truth. Um, That there is no neutrality toward your son and toward your kingdom. Lord, I I pray that would really push us into bold evangelism, uh, bold prayer, consistent prayer. Uh, I, I pray that we would guard ourselves and our our own hearts and our families, even all the, all the more closely because of this, Lord. We trust you. We trust your spirit to work by, by your word, uh, both in Bozeman and around the world. And so we ask these things for your glory and for the benefit of people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, we're going to come to the Lord's table now. So the music team, please join me.